John, First John please, and we're going to read from the end of the second chapter and through into uh, part of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2 and beginning at verse number uh, 28 and reading down to uh, the end of verse 10 of the third chapter. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And we end our reading there at that tenth verse, and we trust that God will bless both the reading of His Word and later when we come to study some of this passage uh, together. <coughs> I'm sure that uh, many of you will be familiar with the name Victor Hugo. He is perhaps primarily known as uh, a poet and an influential exponent of the Romantic movement in France. Uh, however, uh, Victor Hugo is probably more popularly known as the writer of two uh, particularly famous uh, novels. Uh, the first one is uh, Les Miserables, and the second, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Both of those books were made into films, and indeed the former, uh, Les Miserables, 
is, as I'm sure you know, uh, a very successful uh, West End musical. Uh, maybe some of you have been uh, to see it. In one of Victor Hugo's essays, he writes the following, The supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. Loved not for ourselves, but rather in spite of ourselves. There's no doubt that it is certainly a most wonderful thing to know that we are truly loved. Loved despite our many feelings, feelings which are all too evident to those who are nearest and dearest to us and who know us best. And yet, in spite of those feelings, they still love us. The basis of true happiness and security within a marriage and within a family is to know with absolute certainty that your wife, your husband, your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, truly loves you. And yet, folks, how much more wonderful it is to truly know with absolute certainty that God loves us. I think Victor Hugo was pretty near the mark when he identified a person's sense of being truly loved as being the basis of supreme happiness in life. But I would modify his statement slightly. Uh, And I would modify it to read like this. The supreme happiness of life is the conviction that I am truly loved, and then I would add these words, by God. This morning we read from 1 John chapter 3, and indeed the last couple of verses of chapter 2. And in those closing verses of chapter 2, John has been reminding his readers of the return of Christ. And he's encouraging them to look forward to the Lord's return with confidence. And one of the reasons why John's readers could look forward to that future event with confidence was because they were children of God. And as children of God, they were people who were loved by him. And John wants his readers to get a real grasp upon this wonderful truth that they are loved by God. And he speaks about uh, privileges that these readers enjoyed. And that's what we want to think about this morning. The wonderful privileges believers enjoy. And in the opening verses of chapter 3, I want to identify two privileges that they and we as believers enjoy. Those two privileges are that they were the objects of the love of God and secondly, they were members of the family of God. Let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, they were objects of the love of God. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. That's the way the first verse reads in the NIV translation. The New King James translation is, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. 
And there's a number of things that John is clearly wanting to convey to his readers about God's love for them. First of all, John wants them to contemplate the love of God. The NIV translation here isn't as good nor as accurate in the opening words as the New King James. For some reason or other, I don't know why the NIV ignores the opening word in the original language, the word that's translated, behold. And that word behold, at the very beginning of that first verse, is like a huge neon sign. It's there to grab your attention. The church that my wife and I used to attend in Belfast before we came into the Reformed Presbyterian Church was Albert Bridge Congregational Church. And the original building that sat at the short strand there used to have a huge neon sign on the roof that was lit 24-7. And the words of that sign were, Ye must be born again. And whenever it was switched on, uh, at night particularly, and you came down either the Ravenhill Road, or the Woodstock Road, or the Albert Bridge Road, you couldn't miss it. It was massive. It stood out and it grabbed your attention. Well, this behold, at the beginning of this verse, is like a huge neon sign. It, It sort of says, stop what you're doing and think about what you're about to read. It says, give your full attention to what is about to follow. Take a long and a lingering look at what I'm reading here and make sure that it registers. That's what John is saying when he says, Behold, don't just give this a passing glance. Think about these words as you read them. John's about to deal with the most amazing subject in the world. God's love for sinners. And that being the case, he wants his readers to be focused on that and on nothing else. The word behold here is actually written in the form of a command and John is commanding his readers put aside everything else clear your mind and focus on what I'm about to say I'm going to speak to you about the love of God David Jackman has written a commentary in 1 John and in it he says of John's use of the word behold here and the force of it he says the force is that we need to take time to contemplate this love and allow it to sink down into the depths of our being. I'm going to say in a few minutes something about John wanting his readers to appreciate the love of God. But the thing was that they would never appreciate God's love if first of all they didn't take time to contemplate it. And I would suggest that the more they contemplated it, the more they would appreciate it. I wonder, could it be that we do not sufficiently appreciate God's love for us as sinners simply because we do not take time to properly contemplate that love? The fact of the matter is, life for all of us is very busy. We have our jobs to go to. There's so many things to do about the home. There's church meetings to attend. Other activities that we pursue. And probably for you as for me, from first thing in the morning until we go to bed at night, we are always on the go. 
And the great danger, brethren, that we face is that of allowing such busyness to intrude into the time that we should be guarding and keeping for the maintenance and development of our spiritual lives. And one of the things that we should set aside time for and that we should regularly reflect upon in relation to our spiritual life and indeed for the benefit of our our soul is God's love for us. Old Scottish writer and preacher Alexander McLaren says the habit of devout thankful meditation on God's great love for us lies at the foundation of all vigorous happy Christian living. Thankful meditation on God's great love lies at the foundation of all vigorous happy Christian living. When was the last time that you sat down on your own and thought about God's love for you. Is that something that you do regularly? Or is it something that you only do occasionally? Maybe at communion season? Or maybe whenever your pastor happens to be preaching about it? John wanted his readers to contemplate the love of God. And I would say he would encourage us to do likewise. But John didn't want his readers to merely contemplate the love of God. He also wanted them, as I've already indicated, to appreciate the love of God. This was his goal in view. In getting them to think about the love of God, he was wanting his readers to better understand that love and thus more fully appreciate both the nature of God's love and even more so the fact that they were the objects of God's love. How does John go about his task of getting his readers to appreciate the love of God? Well, he does it first of all by reminding them that God's love is unique. It's unique. Look at what John says about the love of God. The NIV translation is, How great is the love? The New King James translation, Behold what manner of love. Now in the original language, it's a a peculiar phrase Literally, John says, of what country is that love? It's a word that expresses surprise in coming across something that is foreign to one's experience. Something that one is not used to and has never come across before. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 27 when Amazed by Jesus' ability to calm the storm in the Sea of Galilee, his disciples say, What manner of man is this? Exact same phrase. Even the winds and the waves obey him. The disciples are saying, We've never come across anything like this before. He's so very different than anyone else, he's unique. That's what they were saying about Jesus. And John is saying here of God's love that it is literally out of this world. It is otherworldly. You won't find love like this anywhere else on earth. And because there was no love like this love, his readers were to appreciate it. But they were to appreciate the love of God not only because it was unique, but also because it was undeserved. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Us. Now, who are the us of whom John is speaking here? Himself and his readers. But how do you think John viewed himself and viewed his readers as he thinks about being the object of the love of God? Did John view himself and them as being people who rightly were loved by God? Did he view himself and them as people who deserved to be loved by God? People whose moral character was such that God was bound to love them. Is that how John viewed himself and his readers well of course you know that that was not how John viewed himself nor his readers because later on in this letter John again writing on the theme of God's love in chapter 4 and verse 10 says this this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins You see, John was very much aware that God did not love either him nor those to whom John was writing because they deserved to be loved by God. Because there was something good and lovely and attractive in them that drew God to them. No! In fact, quite the reverse was the case. They were totally undeserving of that love far from them loving God and God's love for them being a response to their love to him they in fact hated God and were enemies of God they were disobedient rebels and far from deserving to be loved by God they deserved to be consumed by the wrath of God because of their sin but despite that despite the fact that they were totally undeserving of God's love, God nevertheless loved them. And that's one of the things that made God's love unique, that made it otherworldly. You see, in human relationships, it's one thing to love someone who, by the way in which they act towards you, by the way in which they speak to you, by the way in which they treat you, they make it clear that they really love you. Now to love someone like that, it's fairly easy. But to love someone who has no love whatsoever for you, to love someone who is your sworn enemy, to love someone who hates your guts, that's much more difficult. And yet, all of those things are part and parcel off and to be understood as being included in this, and descriptive of that word, us. We who were God's enemies, us. We who had no love for him, us. We who had rebelled against him, us. We who in our own sinful nature naturally want nothing to do with God us and despite all that being true God still loved us as Victor Hugo said the supreme happiness of life 
is the conviction that we are loved. Loved not for ourselves, but rather in spite of ourselves. And God loved us not for what we were, but in spite of what we were. God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was Wesley who wrote the words, we don't sing it, but we can't disagree with the sentiments of it, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Another poet has written, My song is love unknown, my Saviour's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that I may lovely be. O who am I, that for my sake, my Lord should take frail flesh and die? And this is one of the things that makes God's love so unique. It is love for the undeserving. It is unconditional love. It is unique. It is undeserved. But then, thirdly, God's love is unstinting. And the NIV translation here is certainly captures the original. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. That word means to give freely and unstintingly. Whenever you lavish something on someone, you do not hold back. The word carries the idea of being prolifically generous in your giving. It's to take a bottle and pour into a glass and to fill up and then to keep on pouring until it overflows so that there can't get any more into the glass. It is beyond what the glass can hold. That's the idea here when it says that the Father has lavished his love upon us. God, in bestowing his love upon us, gives and gives and gives. He will never withhold from us anything that is for our good. In the exercise of his love, he always demonstrates and works within the limits of his wisdom. And sometimes in his love, he withholds things from us. But even in the withholding of those things, God is showing us love because all his dealings with us are outpourings of God's love, even if at times we do not see them as such. God's love is unique. God's love is undeserved. God's love is unstinting. What a wonderful privilege John's readers enjoyed to be the objects of God's love. And if you're a Christian this morning, that is true of you. You enjoy this wonderful, wonderful privilege. And that is something, brethren, that we need to contemplate and we need to appreciate and as we go in very shortly to a new year we need to make sure that the year ahead is a year when we we take time to contemplate this love more and to appreciate it more 
Because such love will motivate us in our service. Isn't that why Paul wrote, the love of Christ constrains us. It, it, it turns us in and it pushes us forward in the work of the kingdom. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. One writer has penned, Could we bethink the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. If that was the only privilege that John's readers and that we enjoyed, it would be a sufficient source of comfort and encouragement and assurance for them and for us throughout the rest of our Christian lives and be a sufficient subject of praise throughout all eternity. But to that privilege, that they are objects of the love of God, John draws their attention to a second privilege. And that is that they are members of the family of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So reads the NIV. The word that in this sentence the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, is a word of purpose. It points to the purpose for which God set his love upon us. He set his love upon us in order that we would be members of his family. None of us are members of God's family by nature. No human being has by nature the right to address God as Father. I speak in a number of the local schools in Fermanagh, taking their assemblies. And they used to give me an order of service. And in the order of service for each of the schools, at the bottom it says, closing with the Lord's Prayer. And I have never done that. I don't think it's right to encourage people to think of God as their father unless they're believers the stark reality of the teaching of the scriptures is that every single one of us by nature are of our father the devil our nature is exactly the same as his sinful rebellious A person can only address God as Father. A person can only become a child of God by being adopted into God's family. Because we are not naturally born children of God. And one can only be adopted into God's family if God, the Father, takes the initiative to adopt us into his family. And John says that's exactly what God has done for you. In his gospel, John makes it clear in the opening chapter 
that those to whom God gave the right to become children of God are those who have believed on Jesus Christ and received him as Saviour. This is what he says in John chapter 1. To all who received him, received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that wonderful? And the reason that they did believe in Jesus and did receive him as their saviour was because God in his love came to them by the power of the Holy Spirit and breathed spiritual life into them. Opened their eyes to see their sin. Opened their eyes to see the beauty of the saviour. Gave them the gift of faith whereby they embraced Christ trusting him as saviour. This is exactly what John goes on to say in that passage in John chapter 1. Speaking of those who have become children of God and who have been adopted into God's family, John says about them that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born spiritually of God. It is by natural birth that we become members of our natural family. But it is by spiritual birth that we become members of the family of God. We don't become members of the family of God simply because we're born into this world. And a person's spiritual birth is ultimately traced back to the love of God and is an evidence of the love of God. God in love took the initiative to adopt us. In Roman society, which of course was the context in which John was writing, both the social context and also the political context, it was the father of the home who uh, took the initiative to adopt a child. With the father lay the decision to adopt and with the father lay the decision whom he would adopt and once a father of a home in Roman society took that decision and made that choice and went through the necessary legal process to adopt that child that process was completed and that adopted child became a full member of that family And he or she was entitled to all the privileges and all the rights that were enjoyed by the father's natural born children. There was no distinction between them. It was a wonderful thing for an orphan child to be adopted into a good and loving family and to be treated and cared for and loved as a son or as a daughter. Of that family. Not treated and loved and cared for. As though they were a son or a daughter. But treated and cared for. As a son. And a daughter. It wasn't a pretend relationship. It was a real relationship. And that is what John is stressing here. When he says. That we should be called children of God. And that is is what we are. He's saying, 
Get that into your heads. Remember it. Don't forget it. You are children of God. It's not a case that a believer is merely given the name of being a child of God. We have actually become a child of God. As one writer says, this is not wasteful thinking. This is not legal fiction. This is an eternal reality. Some of you will have read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. If you haven't, I would commend it to you. Uh, basically, the plot is the senior devil named Screwtape sends letters to all his junior devils, or sends letters to one of his junior devils named Wormwood. And in the letters, he's trying to instruct Wormwood as to how to handle his patient. Uh, in other words, a human being whom this particular demon is responsible for leading to hell and in the course of their correspondence uh, Screwtape lets the cat out of the bag when he warns his pupil that his task will be very difficult because the enemy, uh, that's God of course, uh, Screwtape's name for God, the enemy and I quote has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. Well, there's a sense in which, brethren, that is what God has done for all of us here this morning who are believers. He has, to take, he has taken us, disgusting little human vermin that we are, and He has made us into His children. Many people in high society are proud of and they boast about their family connections. Prince Charles and Prince Andrew and Edward and Princess Anne they can say oh, I'm a member of the House of Windsor. Yeah. Lady Helen Taylor and her two siblings they can boast my father's the Duke of Kent. Barack Obama's children, they can say, my daddy's the president. Well, if you're a Christian this morning, you can rejoice in the fact that your father is God. Is that how you think of yourself? God is my father. I'm a child of God. John wanted his readers to contemplate and appreciate their privileges and what privileges they were. And their privileges are our privileges this morning if we're believers. What a wonderful thought to take with us into the new year. I am an object of the love of God. I am a member of the family of God. Friends, if that isn't something that thrills your heart, then I don't know what will. And you need to think about it more and to, to, to soak and meditate in that glorious truth more and more. But maybe there's someone here this morning and everything that I have been saying thus far is not true of you. I don't know you all well enough to 
make a judgment call on that. But you know your own heart and you know where you stand spiritually. These wonderful privileges that many of us enjoy, you don't enjoy. God isn't your father. Well, these are privileges that you can enjoy. You could say, I am the object of God's love. You could say, I am a member of God's family. And as you come to the end of 2012 and you begin to look into 2013, you can go into that new year in a wonderful new relationship. A child of God forever. No longer under the wrath of God. No longer an enemy of God. But one who is a child of God and loved by God. These privileges can be yours to enjoy. How? Well, remember what John said in his gospel. To all who received him, speaking about Jesus, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And whenever a man or a woman or a young person comes to trust the Lord and receive him as saviour by faith and believe in his name that person is adopted into the family of God and becomes a child of God and this morning you have an opportunity as God is calling you to receive Jesus and believe in him and commanding you to do so And if you believe him to be who the Bible declares him to be, God's own son, the only saviour of sinners. And if you, by personal faith, receive him as saviour, then you will become a member of that great family of God, of whom everyone can turn and say, Abba, Father. God willing this evening, We'll continue on looking at this third chapter of First John. May God bless to us these thoughts from his word. Amen. Well, our closing psalm of praise is the 103rd psalm, Psalm 103. And we're going to sing from verse, The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with God's redeemed and believing people this day and always. Amen.